Somerville. Lord, we thank you that we are united to Christ. And because we are united to Christ, we're united to everyone else who's united to Christ. Lord, thank you we get to be one great big family in Jesus with you as our Father. And so, Lord, we pray for the churches in this community who know and love and live the gospel of Christ to experience your power in their gathering today. And, Lord, we pray for those churches who aren't in this community. I pray for Pastor Eric Lethgo, Father, that you would give him grace as he continues that study through the book of Romans. Thank you that he's preaching expository messages, verse by verse, plowing through the word of God in honor of your work in your word. And Lord, I pray for the people of Old Fort Baptist, Lord, that they would experience the power of your spirit and be renewed in their understanding of truth today. I pray they would go from that place scattered throughout the community on mission to make Jesus known till Jesus comes again. And Lord, I pray you would teach us. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Be our teacher this morning. Change us and transform us into the image of Christ as we bow humbly before your word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In just a couple of weeks, we are going to be beginning our next verse-by-verse study of a book of the Bible. We just finished Daniel last week. Next week, we're going to begin our study of the gospel of Mark. And in a couple weeks when we begin that study, um, we're going to kick that off with something we call Pray 21. Pray 21 is something we do every year in the 21 days leading up to Easter. What we do is we set those days aside to be a church family who spends time in God's word, who meditate over the same scriptures and prayer as we begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter. And this year, Pray 21 is going to focus on the gospel of Mark. So in those 21 days, we're going to walk through the entire gospel of Mark. And our prayer is that as we see the earthly ministry of Jesus and his journey to the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead, our hope is that God would begin laying a foundation in our hearts to celebrate Holy Week that's coming just around the corner and also to celebrate the work of Christ that he'll do in us as we study the gospel of Mark. And so since we're on the the beginning of this next study, as I prayed these last couple of weeks on, on what to preach during this little interim time between book studies of the Bible, there was a passage of scripture that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart here in Philippians chapter two. And it serves as a sort of precursor to the gospel of Mark. You see, there are two features to the gospel of Mark that uniquely relate to what we'll see in Philippians chapter 2. First, the gospel of Mark has a unique beginning. When you look at the four gospels, Mark will stand out to you because unlike Matthew and Luke and John, Mark's gospel does not discuss the coming of Jesus into this world. In the gospel of Mark, he just kind of jumps right into the earthly ministry of Christ. And so you don't have a nativity or an an incarnation story to begin that gospel. Second, the gospel of Mark has a unique focus 
You see, Matthew is a gospel written primarily for the Jews and uniquely focuses on Jesus as Messiah and King of the Jews. Luke is primarily written to the Gentiles and uniquely focuses on Jesus as the Savior who seeks and saves the lost from all the nations. The Gospel of John uniquely focuses on Jesus as God, the deity of Christ. And the unique focus of Mark is that Jesus is our suffering servant. One of the key verses of the Gospel of Mark is chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we'll see in the months ahead, and I've got to tell you guys, you think we were in Daniel for a while? I have no idea how long Mark is going to last. But we're going to see over the next year or so that Jesus Christ came to this earth And he decided by his grace and for his glory to serve us. To serve us by sacrificing himself to save us. And those two unique features of Mark cause Philippians 2 to become a great study to prepare our hearts for those two features. You see, because in our text, we'll see Jesus coming to this earth. We see an incarnation story here in Philippians 2, one that's not there in Mark. But we also see that in the incarnation of Christ, Philippians 2 is focusing on the theme that Mark will tell us, namely that Jesus came to be a suffering servant to save us as his people. And my hope this morning and next week is that the Lord's going to use Philippians 2 to not only stir our hearts for Holy Week, but to stir a desire to follow Jesus. Because that's what Mark's going to be about. It's going to be about following Jesus. Over and over, we'll hear him invite us, follow me, follow me. And church, I pray that by God's grace and power, we will be a people who when Jesus says, follow me, we say yes. Jesus, by your grace, I'll follow you. And so with all that in mind, let's jump into our text in Philippians chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 says this, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I don't think there's any place left, folks. Everyone everywhere will bow and confess every tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an awesome passage of Scripture. I love this passage of Scripture. But here's the reality. Since we haven't been studying the book of Philippians, I think it's important for me to just 
kind of give you a little bit of information and kind of unpack especially these first few phrases so that we can understand Paul's message to these Philippian believers. And so let me just give you a little bit of insight. In chapter 1 of this letter to these Christians, Paul has told the believers in the city of Philippi that he rejoices every time he thinks about them because when he thinks about them, he has joy. He has joy because he is confident that God began the work of saving them. He was there. He had a front row seat when the church of Philippi was first established. Paul was the one who actually led the very first Christians in this city to a saving relationship with Jesus. And so Paul has a unique vantage point. He knows about the beginning of their journey of following Jesus. And because he's convinced they started the journey of following Jesus, it causes him to rejoice. I mean, that's the one big thing that stands out when he thinks of these believers, that they were following Jesus. And then in verse 1 of our text, what you find is that he starts to describe several things that should be present. And he is assuming are present because they're trusting in Jesus. So if you're trusting in Christ, he gives a few descriptions of a few things that should be fruit or part of your life as a follower of Jesus. He says, if there is, and notice this word, he repeats it, any encouragement in Christ. In other words, if you believe that Jesus died to save you from hell and to make you a child of God, don't you think that should give you just a bit of encouragement? You should be encouraged that Jesus has saved you from hell and made you a child of God. He says, if there is any comfort in love, if you believe that God loved you in a way that he gave his own son, Jesus, to go to the cross and die in your place, if you believe that you are loved by that, that gospel love of Jesus, you should be comforted. No matter what's going on in your life, it should comfort you in some way to know You are loved by God. He goes on to say, if there's any participation in the Spirit. In other words, if you have been born again, you need to know it's only by the power of the Spirit that you have been born again. Chapter 3 tells us that very clearly. It's the Spirit of God that causes new birth. And he says, if you've had any participation of the Spirit, which means if you're born again, you have had participation in the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, if there's any affection... And sympathy. In other words, if you've experienced God's grace and He has visited you in your weakness and brokenness and sin and shown you grace, then He says, in some way, you should have some amount of grace and affection and sympathy for other people who are broken by their sin. Those who've been shown grace show grace. And so, verse one is simply Paul's way of saying in several different ways. That if you have begun the Christian life, the journey of following Jesus, you should have somewhat, any at all, you should have spiritual fruit like this. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 2. He says, complete my joy. Paul is saying, listen, I have joy, chapter 1, in knowing you started your journey of following Jesus. But I am not fulfilled in my joy just because you started following Jesus. He says this, his joy will only be complete 
as he sees them growing and maturing in their journey with Jesus Christ. He doesn't have full joy in the beginning of their journey with Christ. He has mature full joy when he sees them growing and continuing and maturing in their journey with Christ. When Emily and I welcomed each one of our our three children into this world, um, I don't think I have to tell you, we rejoiced at their birth, okay? I rejoiced. I don't know how to dance. And as, a, as an independent Baptist, I was genetically engineered not to be able to <laughs> dance growing up. It was a sin for us. And so I'm dealing with the, the hand that I'm dealt. But I danced a little jig in those hospital rooms. And I would do this for you today, but it would embarrass my wife and children um, completely. We rejoiced over their birth. But you can imagine... Our joy was not complete simply to see our children born. Our joy increased as we've watched them grow. Like when our children grew and matured to the place where they graduated from diapers. Oh, Lord. There was that. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I just got a raise. This is so wonderful. We rejoiced, right? When they started to be able to talk and and tell us what was going on inside of them. And we didn't have to just guess and start throwing pacifiers and blankets and bottles at them to try and figure out why they were crying. We rejoiced that we could communicate with our kids. Now that my children have started driving, we have stress. Uh, Pray for your pastor. Our joy increases with them. Each new step of their maturity. Last night, we had the widow's banquet and Uh, My children served. Logan and the girls uh, served tables, and then uh, the girls and and Emily joined part of a a worship team, and I sat there watching my kids serving the widows in our church, and Logan's as tall, if not taller than I am, far better looking. He's related to his mom, and so that's worked in his favor, and then my girls were up there singing with Emily, and there I sat, a heaping mess of tears. Just watching those girls, and I was fighting them back. I was saying, don't you do it, Titus. Don't you, don't you cry right now, because you'll never stop if you let yourself. Watching those beautiful girls not just mature and to becoming beautiful young ladies and a handsome young man, but to be people who have loved Jesus, yes. right? who love to serve, who love to sing the gospel of Christ. And I have joy that I didn't have at their birth. Because I'm watching them grow and mature into who Christ wants them to be. And that is the dynamic that Paul is referring to here. He's not saying his joy is complete because they have a spiritual heartbeat. If there's any of these little things that should be present in everyone, present in you, my joy is complete. He says, my joy is complete when I see you growing and being strong and your heart is beating with passion for Jesus. And what is the indicator that he gives to us that they are growing in spiritual maturity? How do we know? What, what do we point to as an indicator of spiritual maturity? Is it how much they give to the church? Is it how much Bible knowledge they have? Is it how many books they've read or Bible studies they attend every week? Well, look what he says in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's what he tells us. Spiritual maturity is expressed in unity. He says it's, it's a, a unity of mind. He says being of the same mind. That means we should be united because we know and believe the same truth 
the truth about Jesus in the gospel. Then he says we should have unity of heart, not just mind. Having the same love, he says. That means we should have a a love for Jesus that unites us to one another. A love for Jesus that begins to develop a love for one another. If you love Jesus and I love Jesus, then why would we hate one another? Right? I don't know. Get on Twitter. I'm sure it'll tell you because that's what seems to be happening. He says, no, it should not be. Spiritual maturity is marked by unity, unity of mind, believing the truth of the gospel together, having the same love for Christ that spills over into love for one another. Guys, there's an entire message in those two verses. I cannot get to the bottom line of it other than to say that there is no lasting unity between people unless they're united around the gospel of Jesus. Let me say it this way. Churches won't experience unity, not God honoring unity, simply because they all like the same style of music or have the same interest in political parties. Oh boy, he went there. You can unite a church around those things. You know it. But you won't experience God honoring unity and it's not an expression of spiritual maturity. Boy, I got an amen out of that. I was surprised. There was only four amens, but it was an amen nonetheless. Marriages won't experience God-honoring unity just because husband and wives share the same kids or have the same preferences. Friends won't experience God-honoring unity merely because they enjoy the same hobbies. True unity only is known through the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes us to grow in love for Jesus and one another. And again, this could be its own message, but Paul doesn't leave it there. In chapter two, verses three and four, he goes on to say this in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, okay, be spiritually mature and spiritual maturity is marked by unity. And then he goes on to give us two attitudes that destroy unity, selfish ambition and conceit. That phrase selfish ambition translates a Greek word that was used by Aristotle to describe the self-seeking pursuit of a political office. Apparently in ancient history, politicians were self-seeking. I know it's crazy. How far the, guys, it's the description of somebody who's using and leveraging every opportunity they can to make themselves look good, to advance their own agenda. This is the spirit I call the spirit of I want my own way. It's what goes on in our heads when we think that the thing we need the most is the thing we want the most. And we begin to see the people in our lives as ways or means to get what we want. That's selfish ambition. The word conceit is also translated in some versions as vain glory. It just means worthless or empty glory. It's what happens when we exalt anything that's not ultimately glorious. And the only person who is ultimately glorious is Jesus himself. Only Jesus is worthy of ultimate glory. And so the primary thing that causes us to engage in vain or empty glory is when we glorify something that isn't Jesus or we exalt something that isn't Jesus, namely ourselves. That's what it means to be conceited. It means that we have elevated ourselves to a place 
where we want our own glory. It's the spirit of I want my own glory. It's what goes on us when we want other people to put us a place above themselves. And here's what we need to know, church. Those two things destroy God-honoring unity. Marriages are destroyed by selfish ambition and conceit. Husbands or wives who see their spouse as a means to get what they want. And there are many spouses who see their spouse as nothing more than a means to get what they want. They put themselves and their desires above their spouse and their needs. And you know what it does? It rips the marriage apart. Families are destroyed by selfish ambition and conceit. Parents or children try to manipulate each other in various ways, whether it's compliments or a barter system that's unspoken. If I do this, you'll do that. They put their desires, though, and their interests ahead of each other, and it rips their family apart. Churches are destroyed by selfish ambition and conceit. Pastors, People alike see the church as a means to get what they really want. And they allow their consumeristic greed and self-centeredness to put their own interests ahead of others. And it rips the church apart. Listen, back in the mid-1980s, there were two ships who collided and sunk in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers lost their lives as those ships sank in the icy waters below. And it was a tragedy, no doubt a tragedy. But that tragic event became even more grievous when the public learned the cause of the shipwreck. It wasn't a technology problem like a radar malfunction. It wasn't a natural issue like thick fog. The cause of the collision was human stubbornness. You see, each captain was actually aware of the other ship's presence. Both of them could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other because each captain was convinced their ship deserved to have the right of way. They didn't want the other captain to be proven right or to honor what they saw as stubbornness in another ship captain. And by the time they came to their senses, having refused to yield, it became too late and hundreds of people died as a result. And friends, some of us are living today on a collision course inside of our relationships. Many of us are heading headlong into disaster in our relationships. And some of us, even in this place, have already experienced the shipwreck. And we can testify to this truth. Selfish ambition and personal conceit in our relationships will destroy God-honoring unity and leave our lives shipwrecked in the waters of life. So the question becomes, how do we avoid that crash? How do we avoid losing our marriage or our families, our children, our church relationships before it's too late? Keep reading in verse 3. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests 
of others. Here's what he says. Humility is the key to unity. Humility is what happens when we lay aside selfish ambition and conceit and we begin to count other people and their needs as more important than ourselves. When my family goes on road trips, which we try to do once a year, um, you need to know this. We never break any land speed records, okay? So whatever Google Maps says the amount of time is to take us to get from here to there, add about 20% to that. That's how my family travels. Now, Emily has her own theory about this. She thinks it's because I drive like my grandma. Well, I think my grandma was a great driver, thank you very much. And so that's not a a knock against me. I have another theory. You want to hear it? I think it's because several members of our family have bladders the size of communion cups. That's what I think. You see, when we go on road trips, we have to stop every 10 minutes to use the bathroom. That'll really cut down on your destination time, kids. And there are plenty of times as we're driving along the highway where, lo and behold, dad doesn't have every exit memorized by heart. I just got to get off at the next one and find the first bathroom. And some of those bathrooms in South Carolina and Georgia only have the one person at a time system in the bathroom. You know what I'm talking about. Here's what that means. It means we as a family have to triage our use of the bathroom. The person who's closest to an accident gets to go first, right? And then the kids can go, and then I go, all right? I don't, I don't. Church, I'd like for you to pray for unity in your pastor's home. Just dawned on me. I'm getting in the car with her today, so... Seriously, bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, bless our family. Here's the deal. In a very weird but real way, that's what Paul is talking about here. That's how he's characterizing humility. Here's what he's saying. Humble people, humble people live like other people and their needs are in line ahead of them. That's just just how you live. Now, it's not saying that you should spoil your kids by saying everything they ask for is in line ahead of groceries and everything else. I, 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 a few years ago, um, my son Logan wanted to get these virtual reality goggles. And um, I told him, like, I don't know, a dozen times felt like a thousand. No, you're not, we're not getting those. We're just not getting those. Well, we were getting ready to actually take a road trip. He and I went to Walmart and we passed by one of those dreaded end caps on, on Walmart that has like a thousand of those toys displayed for one very low rolled back price, apparently. And as we go by, Logan says to me, Dad, those goggles and look at that price. Now, I told him about a thousand times, no, you're not getting those, buddy. You're not getting those glasses. He asked me, and I leaned down, and this was a dramatic parental moment. Logan probably still remembers it. I leaned down, and I said, I would rather die than get you those goggles. And if you were there, you'd have seen me. I said, it'll ruin you. It'll ruin you, son. And I'm like crying and it'll ruin you to think you get everything you want in life. That's not how it works. Putting other people in front of you in line doesn't necessarily mean you yield to every whim or want. I still haven't bought him virtual reality goggles, just FYI. I would rather die. But anyhow, 
when we say we put others' needs ahead of ourselves, that's not the same as saying that we held, are held captive in a way that would spoil our children when they want something that wouldn't be good for them or that we are called to give in to abuse or manipulation at the hands of sinful people. That's not good for people. It's not their good to let them destroy themselves or the lives of others around them. Putting others' needs ahead of yourself is thinking in terms of what the Bible says is best for them and being willing to do that ahead of getting your own way, which sometimes mean you have to sacrifice your vain glory to put their best ahead of yourself because they won't like you when you do. Right? You've got to be willing for your kids. Parents, here's a little, here's a little tip, a little tidbit for you. You're not trying to be your, friend, your kid's best friend. Right? Parenting isn't a popularity contest. It's about saying, you may not like me right now for this, but this is what Jesus has said is best. And I love you more than I love my reputation in the sense of you thinking that you getting your way is my way of serving you. However, however, with that caveat, humble people live by putting the needs of those around them in line ahead of them. Not getting my own way, but laying and sacrificing my way to the side so they can have their needs. And I just want to ask you this for a moment. What would change about your marriage today If you started to think about your spouse and their need in line ahead of yours, what would change about your relationship with your parents or your children if you put them and their needs in line ahead of you? What would change at work or your school if you put coworkers and classmates or your neighbors when you go home and their needs ahead of line in in front of you? What, What would change about our church family If when we came to our gathering, our first concern wasn't, what's my preference? What's my like? What will I get? And rather, what do the people around me need? Guys, here's what we've seen so far. Paul is saying spiritual maturity is what he rejoices in. And so the expression of spiritual maturity is that it's expressed in unity and that it's preserved by humility. But that should beg the question, okay, so how do we cultivate a heart of humility? I mean, how do we lay aside our selfish ambition and our self-centered pride? How do we do it? Do we roll up our sleeves and say, okay, well, today I'm going to be humble. I am going to make myself humble. Well, look at what verse 5 says. Have this mind among yourselves. Look at this phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we become humble people? Well, we certainly don't do it by focusing on ourselves and working in our own power to be humble. Listen, do you realize how proud you have to be to think you can make yourself humble? Come on, bro. Who do you think you are? And by the same token, you will not become humble by focusing on other people. When you focus on other people, whether it's your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your church, uh, your fellow church members, the one thing you're going to be able to see as clearly 
as anything else is how broken and sinful they are and you'll begin to justify the ways that you don't think they deserve to be in line ahead of you. So you don't become humble by focusing on self. You don't become humble by focusing on on, on others. You become humble by focusing on Jesus To do for you what you can't do for yourself. Paul says that the attitude of humility is yours when you are in Christ Jesus. Guys, that's the heart of what it means to grow into spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, it just simply means that you're becoming more and more like Jesus. Not because you roll up your sleeves and try your hardest to be good little Baptist boys and girls. It's when you look to Jesus and become more and more like Jesus as Jesus lives in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Listen to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the promise of the gospel is that not only did Jesus come to live a life we couldn't live and to give his life for us on the cross, but he wants to give his life to us and live his life through us by the power of his resurrection. You see, as we go through the series on Mark, we're going to see Jesus inviting us to follow him, follow him, follow him. And what we need to know based on what the scripture teaches us, that when we're called to follow Jesus, he isn't primarily asking us to do something for him. He's inviting us into something that he will do in us. Guys, that makes all of the difference in our Christian life. We'll see that next week in in verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. But for this morning, I just want to put all that we've talked about together, and then we'll close in these closing few verses. Here's our big idea for today. Spiritual maturity is expressed in unity that is preserved by humility in Christ. If you want to know what it looks like to be a truly spiritual, mature follower of Jesus, this is it. It's not measured in how much money you give or how many verses you've memorized. It is displayed as your life is lived in Christ-like humility that promotes unity as an expression of your spiritual maturity. And what I want to do in the remainder of these few moments together is I want to just see what the humility of Christ in human flesh actually looks like in our day-to-day lives. What does it look like when Jesus lives out his humility in human flesh on this earth? Well, let's look at verses 6 through 11 very quickly again. It says, who, Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, look at Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. He's glorious. 
And he is the perfect example of humility. And I want you to notice how vividly Paul is displaying the humility of Christ. Here's what he's showing us. He's showing us that if there has ever been anyone who's ever lived that could rightfully put themselves ahead of others, it was Jesus. Why? Because verse 6 says, he was in the form of God. That word form comes from the Greek word morphe. It's also found there in verse 7 to describe the form of a servant. That word morphe means to have the shape or appearance of something, not as a counterfeit, but as a duplicate. What he's saying is that Jesus is just as much God the Father, just as much God as the Father and the Spirit. Listen, I just have to say this because right here we are. Jesus Christ is not merely a prophet like Muslims believe. And Jesus Christ is not merely a great teacher like Buddhists believe. And Jesus Christ is not merely an example of ideal humanity like Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus Jesus Christ is not merely a transformational leader like many secular humanists believe. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is God. The one and only God who became flesh. Not only is Jesus God, Jesus is Lord. The word Lord in verse 11 is a word that means someone who is in charge by virtue of possession. I love that. Jesus owns everything. He can literally look at everything in all of existence and say, that's mine. That belongs to me. He has the right and authority to do anything he wants with everything he owns. And he owns everything. So if there's anyone who has ever had the right to put themselves above others, it's Jesus. But when he came to earth in human flesh, his life was a life of selfless humility. The one who owns the place didn't walk around like he owned the place. He had a humble heart. And there are three ways this last little section shows us that the humility of Jesus takes shape in human flesh. Not just... 2,000 years ago, but today, as he lives in you. Number one, the humility of Jesus is displayed in sacrifice. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Listen, since Jesus is God, he deserves to be treated like God all the time. It's his right. He deserves rightfully to have angels always bowing down before him and people bowing down, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's his right. He deserves to display his unveiled glory and show this universe how awesome and incredible he is. But when Jesus was born as a man, he did not hang on for dear life to things that were rightfully his as God. What did he do? He let go of the grasp. He let go of his rights. Now, there's a lot of mystery here. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I'm the pastor who gives illustrations about his family using the bathroom. You think I can understand something this theologically deep? I can't. But before Jesus sacrificed his life at the cross, he sacrificed a host of other things that were rightfully his as God to come to this earth. And that's the kind of humility that Jesus wants to enable in you. That's what spiritual maturity expressed in humility looks like. It looks like you, by the power of Jesus, being willing inside of your relationships to let go of things that are rightfully yours. 
What things in your life might Jesus be calling you to let go of? I have the right to argue this point. I have the right to demand my next place in line. I have the right to spend my money this way. I have the right to engage in this hobby every week. I have the right to do this. I have the right. It's my right. What right is Jesus calling you to sacrificially lay aside? If you want to live in Christ-like humility, then you have to die to the mindset that holds on to what you think are your rights. And Jesus is calling you to that. And I don't know what it looks like, but Jesus does. The humility of Jesus is displayed in sacrifice. Number two, the humility of Jesus is displayed in service. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. Guys, when Jesus came to this earth, he came not to be served, but to serve. He knelt down at the feet of his disciples. He washed their feet. He took the lowest place of service in any Jewish household. He got filthy in the mud with those disciples' dirty feet because he was a servant who lived to lay his life down in service to others. And guys, you don't need a lot of explanation on that point. What we need is a heart filled with faith, Holy Spirit power, and obedience that simply says this, Jesus, how are you calling me to serve the people in my life today? What does your spouse need today? Will you, by the power of Christ, serve your spouse today? What do your children need today? Will you, by the power of Jesus, serve your children What do your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates need from you this week? How might Jesus be calling you to serve them today? And will you simply in faith and obedience obey Christ? That brings me to the third thing. Humility of Jesus is not only displayed in sacrifice and service, it's displayed in submission. Verse 8, it says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, even though Jesus is God in his humility, he submitted to the will of God the Father. His heart's desire was to not just have his way in his life, but to have God the Father's way. John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Guys, the kind of humility Jesus empowers in our life is a humility that yields to the will of God. In other words, here's what it looks like. You today setting yourself before God and saying, God, my life belongs to you. It belongs to you. I and everything I have, including my rights, including my next place in line, including my dreams, including my plans, including my hopes, belong to you. I am yours. What would you have me to do? And let me just ask you, friend, is that the condition of your heart today? Jesus I belong to you. So this decision is yours, not mine. This life is yours, not mine. My future is yours, not mine. My time is yours, not mine. My money is yours, not mine. My relationship, my family, my career is yours, not mine. Jesus, I belong to you. Let me ask you this. What part of your heart have you been keeping back from God? Your first step of humility is the act of submission. 
to acknowledge that God is God and you are not. So your life belongs to him. Would you bow your heads? Let's make our prayer this morning. And as we spend just a moment in reflecting in prayer, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, right now, right now, would you call on Jesus to save you? By faith, acknowledge that Christ came as a servant to give his life for you at the cross. And that by his sacrifice, he made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin and restored to God. And would you call on Jesus by faith, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. And I believe you are my savior. Call on Jesus to save you. For those of you who would say, I believe that Jesus is my savior, are you living like Jesus is your Lord? What part of your life have you yet to lay down in humble submission before the Father to say, God, this belongs to you? Whatever it's a decision, a circumstance, a dream, acknowledge it belongs to him. What would he have you do? Would you think of the relationships that you're in that you're feeling the strain, you're feeling the threat of shipwreck? Would you ask Jesus to give you his heart and mind? That he would teach you and empower you by his spirit to live with humility inside of that. To be willing to yield. to have the word and the spirit inform what is good for that person by his grace to do it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be people who follow Christ, not just beginning that journey with Jesus, but having the fullness of joy that comes from maturing and growing and continuing that journey with Jesus. God, fill our hearts, I pray, with humility. Empty our lives, I pray, of pride. Cause Christ's life to be formed in us by the power of your spirit, that, Lord, we would kneel before others today in sacrifice, in service, in submission to the glory of Christ who lives in us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.